Hello, and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number 13 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning. If you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, stop listening now, just go read the books. I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues from The Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. You've been warned. And here we are, issue number 13, the issue before the penultimate issue, the pre-penultimate issue, the penultimate penultimate issue. You get my drift. We are in the final countdown, and things are really heating up. That said, I'm not sure how long this episode's going to be. Some amazing stuff happens in this issue, but the pieces are really falling into place for the big showdown. There's only so much to really tear apart as everything comes together. And uh, let's, let's get on to the episode. Now, when issue 12 ended, we had two big events take place. One, Magda and Hugo had escaped from their suite-slash-prison and found their way into the Umbra Sprite's office. And two, Kevin had botched his chance to enter the Green Realms, broke his wife's scrying mirror, and in frustration, managed to apparently summon mirth. Now, since this issue focuses mostly on continuing these storylines, I'm going to follow each set of main characters on their own, since it's clearer than trying to bounce back and forth. And while talking about the return of Mirth is going to be really fun, let's start off with our dynamic duo, the adventurous Magda and Hugo. We, uh, we start off and get this wild overhead frame of Magda, Hugo, and Cleo in front of the evil black oil Zen wall fountain in the Umber Sprite's office. And this angle really gives you an idea of how tall this thing must be. It just towers over the two. And the dialogue here is fun. This is a family adventure, and Hugo's exclaimed curse kicks off a nice bit of banter as they try to figure out just what this is. Now, Magda describes the mysterious waterfall as not being water, oil, or tar. In fact, the liquid doesn't seem to be flowing down the wall so much as it's crawling down the wall. And Hugo comments that it even sounds creepy, like it's moaning. And on top of that, it's super cold, like standing in front of an open freezer door. Despite having seen this waterfall for most of the series, this description really fleshes out its otherworldliness, like the painting that Magda looks into in issue 12, which looks back at her with a focused evil hatred. The objects in this office, in this building, are never as they seem. The Umbra Sprite and the Grackle Thorns, of course, would have no reason to comment on any of this, so the intrusion of outsiders into this space offers us another experience with more dimension. And again, Matt really balances adventure with family here. Magda warning Hugo not to lean on the fountain's basin, and Hugo's typical, you know, not exactly whiny, but typical kid-like reply. You know, like, Mom, I know what I'm doing, that kind of thing. 
But before they can investigate further, they're discovered by Olga, the muscle, who has gone all Lady Deathstrike with her huge monster claw hands. And I don't think we've seen this particular feature on the Grax since very, very early on when Sasha and Alexei went all horror movie uh, in the city, in a city mission. And in this scene, Olga's kind of like, she's like a hall monitor with way too much power. She is really excited about the opportunity to finally hurt someone. And since she's under orders to leave the Lady Pendragon unharmed, she is anticipating disemboweling Hugo in front of his mom. Charming. Do not invite these things over to a party. They're just buzzkills. But Magda's ready for this. And she has this awesome, badass, I am not taking your shit look on her face as she takes off a magical earring and hurls it at the bloodthirsty Gracklethorn. And this thing flies through the air like a whizzing metal frisbee getting larger and larger until it wraps around Olga, binding her arms to her side. And the action lines in this panel and the pink and fuchsia background really give this panel a lot of energy. Um, with one more earring, and Olga's feet are bound, and the grack goes down, her head hitting the floor with a nasty whack and dislodging her wig. We don't get to see the grackle thorns get truly wicked too often in this series. Even in Hero Discovered, the, the grackle flints were more thuggish than anything else. Even when dealing directly with our heroes, while evil and dangerous, they weren't as extremely, I don't know, violently malevolent as the few times we have seen the Gracklethorns lose their cool, and Olga loses her cool spectacularly, threatening Magda with a line that would be right at home in, I don't know, a Hellraiser, Evil Dead, or Nightmare on Elm Street movie, probably especially Evil Dead, and then something truly weird happens, something else that really reinforces that the Gracklethorns are not just bald albino women with really sharp teeth, as if that's not enough. She throws her head back, and some many-tentacled tongue thing emerges from her mouth, letting loose an ear-splitting shriek or wail, and Magda incapacitates the Grack with some of her magic charmed hairspray, but the noise is still echoing, uh, something that Magda and Hugo assume must be an alarm for others. Now, Magda and Hugo flee, and just to prove that everything happens for a reason, remember that utility closet they found um, on their way into the Umbra Sprite's office in the last issue? Yeah, that. So Hugo and Magda duck in there um, to take cover, only to find that either they've entered the wrong door or... Just as likely, the door leads someplace else now. And they are in underground in a red rock cavern with these twisting pathway ahead of them that rises off into the distance, a perilous fall on either side of the raised pathway, which I gotta say, uh, in this full, you know, page panel, uh, looks kind of like a jagged lightning boltish look to it as it cuts across the middle of the page. So that's where we're going to leave Hugo and Magda for now uh, as they prepare to uh, continue their escape. And now on to what 
what is likely the most anticipated, one of the most anticipated moments in this series, the return of mirth. The end of the previous issue left us with one heck of an entrance for the world mage. As you may recall, Kevin decided to push his luck with the magic money machine, trying to withdraw $10 million. Beforehand, before he does that, he talks about how for years the green card has provided for whatever he's needed, credit ratings, car loans, living expenses, and he's always used it within reason. Never ask for too much. As he says, my family doesn't dine on caviar. So let's look at the role this card plays in Kevin's life, or rather in Kevin's life as an allegory for Matt Wagner's life. In past interviews, Matt had commented that the period of time covered in Mage 2. During that time, he had a steady comic. His career was growing. The real-life equivalents of Kevin's heroic companions, Bernie Moreau and Joe Matt, were both working on his series. Often in Hero to Find, you can see Kevin's picking up the bill. He's, he's buying lunch. As Matt put it in an interview, uh, something along the lines of, I had the magic money card. So on one level, The card represents Matt's career or livelihood. And this may be a bridge too far, but, you know, what the fuck? What's the point of a podcast like this if not to take a few bridges too far and see where they lead? Now, like Kevin not abusing the card, Matt has had a steady career. His owned properties that he wasn't able to work on for a while, uh, work that he's done on covers... Uh, Beyond his superheroic work, he's made a whole side career developing new adventures for pulp adventure icons like The Shadow and Zorro. And I don't know, has he done Doc Savage? Yes? No? It would be awesome if he did Doc Savage. Just saying. Anyway, for Kevin to make this major move, I wonder if this represents a time when maybe Matt pursued a big deal. And what may have come of that... Um, as far as what that could be, if there's any repercussions for just trying to say, hey, I'm going to go for this this big thing, um, we'll see. So we pick up with Kevin facing Mirth, and his anger turns instantly to glee. He gives Mirth a big hug, briefly knocking the wind out of the mage, and there's a cute reaction shot on Mirth's face in that panel, and Kevin tells him, how badly he needs Mirth's help, Mirth replies, I know, why do you think I came? And besides, what is the mighty Pendragon without his trusty mage? However, that doesn't really address why Mirth waited until now to show up. Why did Kevin have to force the issue with his ridiculous withdrawal request if Mirth somehow knew that he was in such dire straits and needed his help? And I, I like this question, What is the mighty Pendragon without his trusty mage? Well, we've kind of been watching Kevin this whole series without his trusty mage, without an apparent other mage. What is he without him? Has Kevin ever really answered that? He is is surrounded by his family. I guess you could push it to that. Magda is certainly an amazing witch. Miranda is certainly coming into her own as a witch, but I'm not sure that they're meant to be the same as the mage. Anyways, all this aside, 
Miranda at this point has emerged from the car, and with about 12 words, she just about owns these first two pages. First, she asks who Mirth is, because of course, she's never seen him, and perhaps unlike Hugo, she hasn't heard any tales of her father's adventures with Mirth. So, when Kevin mentions that he's one of his oldest friends, she quite logically replies, I never met him. At that point, she goes on to semi-whisper in her dad's ear that Mirth looks silly. Uh, Another great facial expression there, the look on uh, on Kevin's face as she says this to him. And, uh, And then she lets Mirth know as much, who, in reply, pretty much pats her on the head, strangely, somewhat condescendingly, but proclaims her perceptive beyond her years. And from the look on Miranda's face and her slightly twisted lips, she's still making up her mind about this goofily dressed stranger, um, no matter what her dad might say. Mirth goes on, speaking somewhat grandiosely, and mentions that his magic is waning, and what magic he retains must be held in reserve as a failsafe against disaster. Uh, However, he can still be a mentor and guide to Kevin and lead him to the enemy, And in many ways, this mirrors their core relationship, uh, as Mirth himself said in Hero Discovered, student and teacher, king and wizard, hero and mage. I believe he even just said, I'm your guide, at one point. And this issue about his magic waning, yeah, we've certainly seen in Hero Defined, in the case of Wally Ut, Wally's use of magic is very different than Mirth's. Uh, Wally's forgetful. Uh, he needs to have a focal point, that hat. He has uh, Edsel's hat, and he uses that as a focus point to remember himself and and focus his magic. So anything's possible here. I um, At this point, the three hop into the car, with Mirth telling Kevin that he must head south to the Bay Area. And as Kevin tells Miranda to get into the back seat, We get yet another reminder from Miranda the kids are supposed to ride in the back, Dad. Uh, Kind of a a running joke since she has been, they have been blatantly breaking the law with Miranda uh, sitting up front uh, running co-pilot for Kevin as they've been driving around in this series. And certainly driving in the back seat is safer, but uh, it does make visual storytelling a little bit tougher when you keep having to have, uh, you know, two people that you want to show together in a scene, one in the back seat, one in the front seat, one in the back seat, one in the front seat. I think it just makes for easier storytelling. I, I do think it's a shame that Mirth doesn't comment on the car's license plate, but I suppose you can't cover anything. There are only so many panels and word balloons to be had. Now, as they get on the road, Kevin gets close to asking Mirth why it took him so long to answer him. But they get sidetracked from that topic as Kevin tells Mirth that he's glad he got over the mystical trauma that turned his hair white, like Joe Fat. Now at first, with the way that Kevin mentions it, Mirth seems a bit confused. But Kevin then goes on to ask Mirth why his arms are bandaged as well as his legs. Now, in Hero Discovered, we learn that Mirth's leggings are no mere fashion choice. They're in fact magical prosthetics from the knee down. Mirth, at this point, warns Kevin that the struggle claims a heavy toll, beyond any mere appearance, 
that their enemy's power is staggering, its malice unrelenting, and his arms bear many scars from opposing such adversity. So clearly, Mirth's been injured while he's been away. Mirth seems to have been also actively engaged in battle in one way, shape, form, or another, having borne these additional wounds. Uh, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, there was never really much in the way of an explanation given about why Mirth left Kevin in the first place and what he's been doing, where he's been, etc., etc., all this time. And speaking of the dangers of the battle, Mirth asks Kevin if he thinks it's wise to bring Miranda into this battle. He offers that she might be a liability, but Kevin insists that she is safest with him, and Mirth concedes with a sigh. Uh, personally, I think Miranda will continue to surprise and not only be safest with Kevin, I think she's going to be an important asset for him as well. But it's a nice touch that as that dialogue's going on, we get this frame of her sleeping in the back seat. It just says a lot. Picking up his role throughout the series as Kevin's guide and, and frankly providing valuable exposition at times, Mirth clues Kevin in that the white ones that uh, the Red Cap spoke of are the Umbra Sprite's latest offspring. And Kevin seems shocked, but Mirth sets him straight, informing him that his foe is, and always has been, the Umbra Sprite. Uh, Kevin doesn't seem too thrilled to hear that his lightning bolt blast through the Umbra Sprite at the end of the Hero Defined did not defeat the villain. In fact, Mirth likens it as a pinprick to an elephant. He's really building the Umbra Sprite up here, driving home to Kevin just how high the stakes are, reminding Kevin that their enemy has survived millennia and survived the suffering of the light many times, but still survives, that it will take more than one blow to dispel such a singular darkness. I also like how Mirth refers to the Umbra Sprite as it again. The Umbra Sprite having appeared as both a man and woman is in fact neither. The Umbra Sprite is truly a malevolent it from some other plane or dimension. Way back in Hero Discovered, the Umbra Sprite out and out says to Emil and Stannis Crackleflint, you remember how unpleasant it was traveling to this wretched little plane? So, the Umbra Sprite is no glass joe to be knocked out with one haymaker. That's worth tucking away, and keeping in mind that a confrontation between the Umbra Sprite and the Hunter Matchstick family seems forthcoming. There may be more than one person available to help defeat this darkness. Um, you know, outside of that, uh, there may be another person available to help defeat this darkness that shows up in this very issue. All in all, this drive gives Mirth a chance to bring Kevin up to date with a fair amount of what we know as readers, filling in the big gaps for him as they move closer to the Umbra Sprite's headquarters. Indeed, as they cross the Golden Gate Bridge and make their way into the city, Mirth helps peel away the, uh, the facade of reality to reveal another realm, like entering the Mystery Realms, until all that is left amid a deserted, lifeless, just desert mountain range is one towering, familiar-looking black skyscraper, the Citadel of the Umbra Sprite. Kevin comments about how it looks like the Styx Casino, 
as they come to a halt and prepare to move ahead on foot. Kevin loads up on bats, telling Mirth that they're nothing special, just wood, and unlike the bat Excalibur, they can't contain the power of Excalibur without being destroyed. Nothing can. Um, so I don't know, there's something about how that was mentioned that just makes me makes me think about what can handle that power. I guess the only thing that can contain that power without being destroyed is as Kevin himself. Miranda puts on her Marrow's disguise cloak, and they set off to save the rest of the family. Mirth informs Kevin that the entire landscape is a grim monument to their enemy's infinite malevolence, that the very mountains and ground is comprised of calcified bone dust, the remains of the Umbra Sprite's victims. I mean, damn, that's a lot of victims. The scope of that comment is mind-boggling. And while in the past, Mirth has certainly informed Kevin about his enemy and, at the time, his enemy's sons, the Grackleflints, Mirth is really building up the Umbra Sprite here. He is really building him up to be a... Uh, a big bad threat. This is really just taking our understanding of the threat that is the Umbra Sprite to a whole other level. Yeah, there are times in Hero Discovered that while being deadly serious about the threat that the Umbra Sprite represents, Mirth had been a little more joking and a little more cavalier, especially even straight face to face with the Umbra Sprite, with a shade of the Umbra Sprite at one point, but that was years ago, and apparently Mirth has been through a lot, so he's really making sure that Kevin understands and that we, the readers, understand this is, uh, this is a big deal. This is, this is no small fight. This is no minor battle that they are going into. The three approached Kevin's one and only challenge to enter the Umber Sprite Citadel. A huge, black, two-headed dragon. And... The look on Miranda's face on the last panel before the gatefold is priceless. Just wide-eyed surprise in distinct contrast to the two battle-hardened expressions on her father and Mirth's faces. They're, in a way, just, it's no big deal to them. Kevin looks like he's just set and ready to take it on. Mirth, not much to read there on his face. But Miranda... <laughs> <laughs> you can, she's just like, whoa. And Mirth, keeping with his role as the guy who knows the names of all the monsters, informs Kevin that this is the guardian of the gate. In fact, it is, as emphasized by some very cool Dave Lanfear lettering, the Black Serpent of the Cairn. A cousin to Kromkroich. To Kromkroich. Uh, the dragon defeated by Kevin at the end of Hero Discovered. But Kevin cuts off Mirth's explanation, telling Miranda in uh, so many words to hide. But before she does, the worried girl comments, But that thing's really big. And it is. Really big. In fact, it's wrapped around, around the base of the building. Okay, now, let me repeat this for the sake of scale. The thing is so large, it wraps entirely around the building 
twice from the looks of it. But Kevin isn't impressed. He takes on the bantering, two-headed, supersized snake and just destroys it, them, with a huge burst of energy that he sends right into one of its heads through the bat. So while the battle is brief, it's a good one. The two-page spread revealing the black serpent of the cairn is pretty cool, right down to Mirth announcing the beast with arms raised high in emphasis. Kevin rejoins Miranda, who draws his attention to Mirth, who has fallen and in pain on the ground. He's been struck with a vision, foreseeing disaster and heartache. Kevin's son and wife are in grave and imminent danger. Now, we've seen this before. When Mirth has an onset of the sight, a vision, it comes on unexpectedly and the beginning is painful. The first time it happens in issue two of The Hero Discovered, the onset of the sight literally doubles him over in pain. He's sweating from the experience. And we can see that he's clearly in pain in this scene. The sight, the attack coming onto him almost at the same exact moment that Kevin has defeated the serpent. The timing of this also could be in sync with Magda and Hugo facing off with Olga in the Umbra Sprite's office. That's likely the vision in question, likely the threat in question. And as he recovers, Mirth raises a hand, again shifting matters of perception to open doorways into the citadel. Child's play, as he puts it. And the three enter. And it looks like they're heading into the same cavernous environment where Magda and Hugo found themselves. But who knows how big it really is in there? How many floors of weaving pathways and stairs? It looks like they might be heading into a real maze. Oh, and one more thing. It's easy to overlook if you aren't paying attention. In the foreground, among the peaks, is a familiar-looking imp watching the trio enter the citadel. We haven't seen him since he avoided Kevin's Excalibur-charged branch that took down a tree in the forest. But just what is that little guy doing? And on the last page of Kevin, Mirth, and Miranda, I love this one panel. Kevin is supporting Mirth, Mirth and Miranda looking ahead as they make their way forward to the Citadel. It's not a, a fight, fight, fight kind of panel, but to me it's it's a really dynamic frame and it's got some great visual storytelling going on in there. Okay, before we go on, a few words about the Serpent of the Cairn. Now, much of the following about the Mabinogian is courtesy of Susan F. Garlic from a piece titled Horses, Swine, and Magical Birds, the Role of Animals in the Mabinogian. The Mabinogian is a collection of 11 medieval Welsh tales, which form the nucleus of early Welsh prose. The tales are typically set in the real world, they kind of reflect medieval Wales, but they also shift repeatedly into magical realms and echo earlier Celtic myth and tradition. Now, the original dates for each of the tales in this uh, are uncertain and debated, but the key tales are thought to date in their present form to the late 11th or 12th century, and they're evidently based on earlier tradition, maybe oral tradition, but 
These are considered to be the earliest Welsh narrative prose tales. Uh, other tales in the collection date to approximately the 12th and 13th centuries. All of this is time when various Arthurian, especially the 12th and 13th centuries, is the time from which a lot of Arthurian stories uh, seem to spring from. Now, Mab means son or boy. Mabinogi is generally thought to or understood to refer to tales of a hero's youthful exploits. The full Mabinogian collection also includes a tale titled Kilwuch Ak Owen, which is of particular importance as it's the earliest, um, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, existing tale of Arthur, preserving references in it to early, now lost Arthurian material. Uh, before we go on, first of all, what's a cairn? And I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but I'm not going to bother looking it up, so there it goes. A cairn is a mound of stones that's built as a memorial or a landmark, typically on a hilltop or a skyline. So the scene here, uh, with the serpent wrapped around the base of the building, uh, definitely qualifies. It's at the top of a huge mound of stones uh, amid this desolate skyline. The black serpent of the cairn is only mentioned in one tale in the Mabinogian. The hero, at this point a member of Arthur's court, encounters at one point a one-eyed um, knight, the owner of a court. Uh, the knight or mini-lord you know, claims to have lost his eye fighting the black serpent of the cairn. Now, of it he says, the, and, you know, some of these, these titles are great, the names of places. There is a mound called the Mound of Mourning, and in the mound there is a cairn, and in the cairn there is a serpent, and in the serpent there is a stone, and these are the attributes of the stone. Whoever holds in one hand will have, um, whoever holds it in one hand will have as much gold as he wishes in the other hand. So, after many adventures, going through different places with really fancy names of their own right, with very interesting rites of passage or challenges that he obviously has to go through at each step, the hero ultimately faces and defeats the Black Serpent. And that's it. I mean, really, it is like one part of a sentence, not even the entire sentence. It basically says he goes over to the cairn, he kills the Black Serpent, and he came back. Bang. Doesn't even get a full sentence. But this is another example of Matt reaching into the Celtic mythos as he creates the rich backdrop of this story and really reinforces the whole Pendragon connection here. And, uh, and now, you know, that brings us to the really fantastic end of this issue. You know, we finally, after so many issues, get to see the rescue mansion, the rescue mission that the Gracklethorns, Carol specifically, has set up as a trap for the Fisher King. And boy, when they say that they were sparing no expense to make it luxurious, they weren't kidding. The front entrance looks like a four-star hotel, with a small courtyard in front of it, with greenery and benches, and inside, 
Carol is reminding someone that works there that any crippled applicants should be directed her way. When a man, missing his right leg from the knee down, approaches her and just outright announces himself to be none other than the Fisher King. Now, nice touches here include actually seeing the Fisher King figure approaching the entrance of the mission in the establishing panel. Also, Carol dropping her clipboard and pen is a nice touch as the man claiming to be the Fisher King reveals that he knows things that that no one other than the Umber Sprite and the Gracklethorns should know. He refers to her as a Grack, and he mentions that they've been searching all over and that they had built the mansion, uh, the mission, as a trap to draw him in. And the, the Fisher King is a groovy sight. He's got on a leather vest, a tie-dye t-shirt with a big peace symbol, and an oversized flat-top gaucho hat above circular-framed um, Lenin specs. Uh, Dave Lanfear even gives his name the special treatment, similar to issue zero when the Steez proclaims Kevin to be the Pendragon. I mean, this raises all sorts of questions. Is this really the Fisher King? How does he know that the mission is a trap set by the Umber Sprite and the Grax? How does he know that Carol is a Grack? Heck, how does he even know about these new Grax anyways? And knowing all this, why did he willingly come right to them? So many questions, but so cool. Just great kind of another great cliffhanger kind of ending leading us uh, right into the next issue. Now, I don't know if I've covered the the Fisher King per se uh, as it exists in Arthurian myth in a past episode. I I will say that in the in the spirit of of Mage, as the Fisher King is used in Mage, he is pretty much a a symbol and sign of of the light. Um, he's the embodiment of goodness, and again, sacrificing him will bring on centuries of, you know, or, or a reign of darkness uh, through the uh, through the years. It will throw the balance of the eternal struggle between light and darkness towards shadow and chaos for what Mirth called an unknown length of time. Uh, so. As the embodiment of light, uh, I suppose that in many ways, showing up as a uh, as a bit of a hippie with the peace sign on his uh, chest is a is 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 a pretty fitting embodiment uh, for the Fisher for the Fisher King. But still, lots of questions. And that's it with this episode. Uh, issue number fourteen comes out tomorrow, so I'm going to take a pass on covering the letter column and other reviews. As a matter of fact, by the time this is posted, it will be tomorrow. It will be the 12th when issue 14 comes out. I I will close with two last comments. As I said in the last podcast, when I saw Mirth at the end of last issue, it occurred to me that there are a lot of narrative possibilities here, which I'm not going to get into until the story shows me to be right or wrong. And I'll record that in a standalone super mini podcast that I'll reveal later, uh, that I'll put out later at that time. Along with it, I'll also release a series of email communications with mage fan John Petz, 
who has had some interesting questions and comments about the series as we get into this end game. So should I share them in the podcast and just read them out loud? I mean, it's an audio format. I don't know. Drop me a line at Kevin at MageTheHeroDescribed.com or on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, let me know if you'd rather see them online to read for yourself, hear them in a podcast, or, I don't know, maybe both. Also, as mentioned in an earlier podcast, a while ago, I had reached out to a wide variety of comic professionals, reviewers, and fans to share what they would say to people if they were going to recommend that they read Mage. Their replies were collected in an article titled, Eight Reasons You Should Be Reading Matt Wagner's Mage. Now, if you haven't read it yet, check out the article. Uh, you can find it at the uh, magetheherodescribed.com website. But heck, if you're listening to this, you aren't really the target audience for the article. The reason I'm mentioning it is so that you can share it with your friends with a note telling them why you think they should read it. Post it on your Instagram, your Facebook, send it in an email, um, you know, drop it on post-it notes around the office. I don't care, whatever. Just lend somebody the hero discovered. Uh, some of the contributors to the article you'll know, uh, the uh, amazing creator artist John K. Snyder III, who was the inspiration for the character John J. Strider, Prester John in Mage the Hero Defined, he was kind enough to share his thoughts. You'll also hear from Eli and Manis from the Can I Thwip It podcast, writer and reviewer Michael Penkis, who's put up some awesome reviews of the hero denied at Blackgate, Blackgate, just to make sure that's clear. Um, Jen Delari, the creator of the webcomics A Wish for Wings and Closet Space, and quite a few more. Um, we are in the final stretch here. The last issue is coming up and Mage is done. It's over. Um, and, you know, after this, I've, I've mentioned before, Mage is in the rearview mirror. Uh, it won't be in as much of a position to garner buzz and new readers after that last issue comes out. Uh, there will certainly be some coverage when issue 15 comes out, and Matt's going to be doing some Comic-Con action at that time. But now is the moment to spread the word. Now is the moment to share the magic. Uh, that article was an attempt to help just give anybody listening as a fan ammunition uh, to, you know, to share and maybe turn some more people onto it. So that's it. Two more issues to go. Um, three, I guess, if you count the final issue as two, since it's double-sized. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I will review issue number 14. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, images, and scenes that are mentioned in the podcast are usually linked to the site from Instagram, but you might just be better off visiting Mage Hero Described at Instagram. At the website, you can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. I want to thank those who have already placed reviews out there on um, out there on iTunes. Appreciate it a lot. Uh, actually, uh, you know, one person even... Uh, was an old uh, 
was an old fan when I was doing the Hero Defined website back in the 90s, and it attended some of those uh, those primitive web chats that we held with, with Matt around that time. Uh, so thanks for the support. Thanks for the help uh, with, uh, with those ratings and rankings. And uh, until next time, stay excellent.